I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie's getting very particular these days. If the conditions aren't exactly right, or if it looks as if I'm taking a route that she doesn't favour, then she stands still and stares at me with her dog eyes and says, Can I just ask exactly which way we're going to be going and for how long? (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing your voice. I love you, dog. Even though your breath smells like a stinky seaport from ancient times. I don't want to go up that route. I don't like that route. It's boring. I prefer the hill. All right, we'll do the hill. Yes, yes, I love the hill. Let's do the hill. Okay, we'll do the hill. It's very wet today, though, Rose. I don't mind. I love the hill, even when it's wet. Watch out for the cows. I will be careful for cows. Anyway, hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Me and Rosie just managed to catch a break in the rain. So we're nipping out to do our intros and outros. Anyway, look. Oh, wow. It's blowing up a hurricane here. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest for podcast number... 133. He is the British writer, Vogue columnist, and former creative director of the digital video channel Nowness, Raven Smith. Really enjoyed having a rambly chat with Raven earlier this year. His first book, Raven Smith's Trivial Pursuits, was published and quickly became a bestseller. It's a collection of humorous essays about various aspects of modern life in the affluent West that, according to Raven, examine the world around us and somehow interrogate our humanity at this exact point in history, on and offline. We talked remotely during the lockdown in June, just a few weeks after my ma died. So we talked a bit about parents and we also spoke about the cultural climate in the wake of the George Floyd killing and the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests and how Raven views his position in society as the child of a black father and a white mother. Speaking of parents, Raven and his husband are in the early stages of trying to have a child of their own with a surrogate mother. And we talked a little bit about the moral and logistical complications associated with that process things get a bit more trivial in the second half of our conversation where we talked about a certain biscuit spread and ice cream bar brand that I had mentioned in an email to Raven before our conversation, telling him that it had threatened to become a problem during the lockdown. We also discussed our concerns about Charlie Bucket's grandparents in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and what most people would do if they had just six minutes to live. But we started by discussing microphones, giving me the opportunity to moan once again about Louis Theroux's podcast. And I justify that to myself because, although it gives me great sadness to say, it's punching up. Back at the end with news of a forthcoming live-streamed podcast on the 21st of October, plus a podcast recommendation. But right now... With Raven Smith. Here we go. What's it doing? Oh, you dick. Oh, it is recording. I thought it hadn't been recording. I'm glad it it was. (laughs) Here we go. Oh, 
this mic here show me the mic just lift it up oh there it is hey that looks nice <laughs> i did a podcast with pandora sykes oh yeah she hasn't collected the microphone yet nice. so here we are yeah foolish there you go perfect i did offer it but now she's got one over on you and she can just summon you as a podcast guest anytime she wishes yeah i just have to be prepared to go live at any moment yeah throughout my day that's right i did that with a few of my friends at the beginning of lockdown I bought microphones for Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux and my friend Tash yeah. Dimitriou, all of whom I knew are sort of reliable chat companions that I would probably be calling yeah. on during the lockdown. So I thought if I got them a good mic each as a present, they can keep it. And then I won't feel bad about just emailing them the day before and saying, look, I, how about let's do a podcast tomorrow? And they just have to go, yes. And they have to deliver the goods. Uh, have you done it? Yeah. And it works. It works a treat. But then... Here's the thing, Louis Theroux went off and started doing his own shitting podcast yeah. with the mic that I gave him, and he teased me <laughs> about it on my podcast, and I had to laugh, but inside I was seething, and he said, I'm going to piss on your leg, on your patch, out of the microphone that you bought me, and love It's bad. And we were laughing and laughing, but deep down I was thinking, that's exactly what you're going to be doing. Just got to plot your revenge. Yeah, and his podcast is number one. Have you listened to Louis' podcast? I've listened to Louis' podcast. The Lenny Henry one was good. They were all good, unfortunately. He's, <laughs> he's very good at it. You know, he's funny and he's intelligent and he yeah. asks interesting questions and he keeps the chat going. I mean, that's more or less all you need to do. However... No jingles. No. Doesn't talk to a dog, real or imaginary. It's lacking. Yeah. Give me some negative stuff. It's it's full of holes. It's like a sieve. It's <laughs> all right. I've, I kind of dip in and out. Like when I was commuting before lockdown, I was listening to a lot more. But now I just need like a beat to walk to. Right. On my same walk every day. So what do you use as a beat then? Well, at the moment it's Lady Gaga, but I feel like I should say something better that's okay what classic gaga no the new one chromatica just keeps me surging forward which is all you really need were you happy with gaga's rendition of what did she sing in the in the lockdown concert not that long ago i didn't watch the lockdown concert I, I... smile when your heart is breaking <laughs> smile even though it's aching and i was sort of thinking this is bringing me down I want something cheery. Well, there's, there's something about her. She just bridges that thing. Like, Chromatica is so, like, future Tokyo world. Uh -huh. And then she's also like, I would also like to be an Oscar lady in a beautiful dress. So smiles kind of like, she doesn't pick a side. She's not polarised like the rest of us. I quite, I'm quite into smile, but I only really watched... Elton John, repeatedly. <laughs> I just couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> I'll never be done watching that whenever I feel sad. That made me smile. Yeah, man. Abso-fucking-lutely. Here's a thing that I sometimes think about saying to guests, but I always forget to say it. Mm. You shouldn't feel as if you need to be polite or indeed respectful, you know, if you're that <laughs> way inclined. I'm sure... I think most of the people I speak to, you know, they're nice people. So if I say something weird or they just don't understand what I'm on about, they don't necessarily call me on it. But you really should. And, uh, okay. you know, I don't mind. It'll be fun. But don't feel you have okay. to. No. <laughs> I don't have any kind of secrets. Okay, cool. Or anything that's like off hand, off grid, off Off menu, topic. off topic. Off menu. Maybe. Yeah, same here. Exactly. I, I feel as if you can ask me anything if you want to, and I'll make a fist of trying to answer it, or I'll just lie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like if someone asks you quite a personal question in a, in a public forum like this, for example, what's yeah. your tactic? How do you deal with it? If you don't really want to be 100% honest, 
are you just going to make a joke out of it or will you ever lie? It's never really happened that I've been asked a question that's so sticky and awkward that I feel like I have to wiggle out of it. Mm -hmm. But I always get scared that I get quite serious and people, is that really what people want to hear from me? Mm -hmm. Hardcore chat. But I don't think I lie. I've got this whole thing about not lying. It's like quite a chip on my shoulder about it. It gets me in more trouble than gets me out of trouble. Right. Can you remember the last time you got in trouble because you don't lie? Every day with my husband. Oh, really? And I'm like, I think this. And he's like, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Because I always feel in a relationship, especially after a few years. How long have you been together? Ten years. Ten years. Congratulations. And you've yeah. been married for five, right? Yeah. Coming, yeah, something like that. Right. Four or five. So I think at that point, you do, you know, as long as things are mainly going okay, you do feel as if you want to be able to say everything to that person, you know, because apart from anything else, that's one of the rewards you get is just feeling incredibly close to them mm. and having a weird bond that most people who've only known each other a few months can never really have and they might fool themselves yeah. into thinking that they do but they don't really you have to earn that after years and years of struggling mm. through all kinds of shit and being bored and pissed off with each other and all sorts of stuff so sometimes i do get tempted to say an honest thing when it's not necessarily that nice mm. because i hope that the other person is going the other person i'm talking about my wife I hope that <laughs> I hope that she will know that underneath all of that is the bedrock of love that I have for her. Yeah, care. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? Because your relationship should be honest and bare and like there's a brutality to that, but it's also about looking after the other person, which sometimes right. means holding back a touch. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Sometimes I forget. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, we got very deep, very fast. We're in. But we can go deeper, I feel. Yeah, I nearly started talking about my mum already. So, Do, Well, I was going to ask. I was <laughs> going to ask, because all that stuff is on my mind. My mum died recently, mm. and um, I've been kind of really knocked out by it and feel very strange and kind of mad. And obviously the mm. lockdown doesn't help. And I don't know, it just feels everything seems upside down. But I'm interested to talk to you about your parents and are they both still around your folks yeah so my mum is not that far like 50 miles away and my dad lives around the corner but I don't really we don't have a very close relationship my birth dad my actual dad my dad but me and my stepdad are really close uh-huh I saw a picture of you and your father in my dad your yeah. dad dad in a bath yeah that you posted on your Instagram page and it was taken I guess what last week no yeah, yesterday. It's from yesterday. It's live. Uh, it was it's you. An Instagram live. <laughs> <laughs> it was you as a toddler. It's a very sweet picture. When was that taken then? I, I would say like 18, 1986. So 30 odd years ago. Has he got a load of dreadlocks under that hat? Yeah. I remember really vividly him letting me, like, going to visit him with my mum and him saying, come into the other room and showing me his dreads privately. So. <laughs> He's on good form. You know, he's always seems very relaxed and chill. Yeah. He's a great guy. He wasn't around as much as I would have liked, but he's, he's a great guy. And do you ever talk to your mum about him? Not really. Did she sort of explain to you, like, what happened and why he isn't around? Or, or did you never go into that? Not really. We left London when I was three. So, it's, and I still had quite a... She used to bring me up every weekend. So we still have a sort of ongoing relationship throughout that time. I think he's just the kind of person that I have to go to him. So it's kind of on my terms. I don't think he would ever call me up and say, shall I come over? It's a very weird thing because I think the thing is with... I think everyone wants to have a very close relationship with both of their parents. But I don't... I'm not close with my dad, but we get on really, really well when we hang out, which is very seldom. I texted him yesterday for Father's Day and he left me on red. So we, we will hear back from him soon enough. You've already described a better relationship with your father than most people have, I would think. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. I, I wonder what my how I would be if he had been like a much bigger presence in my childhood. Right. But I was definitely, I wrote about it before. That I, I definitely like minimised myself in his presence, much less the Raven Smith that I was at with my mum just like quieter less exuberant less 
gay in a way, just a smaller version of myself. So I think there's probably something to unpack in that at some point. But I feel like very confident in terms of who I am now and my identity. So he's part of that, but it's always been, I don't know, weird. Did you sit down with him when you knew you were gay and say, listen, dad, this is the deal? I've never officially come out to my dad, which makes it sound like <laughs> I've never come out to him. But he texts me once and he's like, how's it going? And I was like, I've just split with my boyfriend. I'm having a tough time, but I'm okay. So he sort of, he knows. Yeah, but you know, that's exactly, it's a weird thing for me to ask, I suppose, because it's not as if I ever explained the details of my sexual adventures to my dad. Yeah. He sort of knew I had a girlfriend from time to time, but... When I was heartbroken and when I got dumped or whatever, I would never talk to my parents about any of that. I mean, my mum and I are really close. I was an only child and she's a single parent. So what we were talking about before, about that kind of like someone else knowing your feelings, that happens quite naturally when it's like a, a mother and son mm -hmm. and it's just the two of you. Right. A lot of sort of telepathic communication. And that is something that I have to realise is not what it's like with other people. Yeah. I have to, you have to externalise, basically, which I didn't have to do in my childhood in the same way. Yeah, yeah. So you're quite close to your ma now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I speak to her like most days. Yeah, she's good. I think they're, I mean, like most people in their 60s, 70s, they're just worried about getting corona. Yes. All the time. If I'm going out, then I wear a mask. With my friends and family, I wear a mask. Having sexual intercourse, I wear a mask And when I'm on my own, I also wear a mask I have to wear a mask cause I am toxic Terrible things are spilling out of me I also wear a mask cause you are toxic A tiny bit of you could be deadly Mask, mask, put on your mask If you care about the human race Mask, mask, always wear a mask Cover up your frightening deadly face I'm enjoying your book, congratulations you, Is that your first book? Yeah Yeah, you and me, yeah. we've written books we're book guys. How do you feel about it? Because I feel very... The whole process of writing it, I was like, I can't believe I'm trying to write a book. Yeah. And then it was coming out and I was like, I can't believe I'm putting a book out. And now I just can't believe I've written a book. Yeah. I just can't get my head around it. When did you start writing yours? Like last January. I left my whole life behind me. I moved to Berlin for a month and wrote the first half. That's what I should have yeah. done. Yeah. I mean, it's a luxury. Wait, you wrote half the book in one month? Yeah. Holy shit. That's impressive, mate. Is it, it? Yes. I started trying to write my book in 2016. Okay. <laughs> Yours is probably a much higher word count, but we won't get into that. Oh, yeah, let's not battle word counts. I really don't think there's that much in it anyway on that score. But I think you definitely played it right. Also, you're younger than I am, I believe. Well, yeah. Well, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I've been 32 a few times, but yeah, 30s. Okay. So, yeah, when I was in my 30s, I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't writing any books. And it really took me a ridiculously long time. And now now I feel a bit bereft because it's been my project for the last four, well, certainly for the last two years. I mean, I say I started working on it in 2016. I did, yeah. but I wasn't doing that much for a couple of years. It only really started in earnest uh, towards the end of 2018 and a lot of last year. But it feels good to have it out, though now I do feel like, what do I do now? You're better known than me, so you already have people reflecting back to you, things you've said in the past, whereas I'm completely new to it, and I find it very weird. Writing is such a private thing. Yes. So to have other people in your head with you of what you've written is just the most bizarre, weirdest, new experience. You've written newspaper columns before, though, right? Yeah, I had a Vogue column online and then I was working with The Times and now I'm at Vogue in the US. But there's a level at which when you're commissioned to write a piece for somebody, it's really clear what your objective is in the piece and how many words it's going to be. And there was something about writing the book that was so like sprawling. What am I thinking today and why am I thinking it and trying to unpick that all the time. It's called Trivial Pursuits because it's all about the small stuff and I was trying to catch all of the small stuff that was happening every day you know it was that those very early stages were like this intense diary of every single thing I was I was I had this app on my phone and I was just recording thoughts 
<laughs> like you've read enough of the book to know that it's like got a stream of consciousness to a degree but I don't necessarily give you 700 words on the same thing in a chapter so I think to have people in that stream of consciousness is quite scary yeah and I mean it's like the job of a stand-up comedian though have you ever done stand-up no I don't think I could I think I'd find it too scary I think you probably could I don't see that there's that much different I mean there's all different flavors of stand-ups you know Mm. There are some stand-ups who are more or less just reading out things that they've written. You know, there's other stand-ups yes. who are <laughs> responding to what's happening in the room and chatting with the audience, and that's where their comedy comes from. But a lot of stand-ups just write, and they craft their material, and they hone their sentences, and then yeah. they learn it, and then they go out and they sort of recite it. That's a legitimate way, you know. Yeah, did you read your audio book as well? Yes, I did, yes. I had a lot of notes at the end of my audio reading. <laughs> yeah. like, there's a lot of stuff that will not make it into, that just needs work. I wish I'd spent less time procrastinating when I was writing it and more time editing, 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 editing. I think it's good, though, to have done it. I think there's so much to be said for just getting it out and moving on to the next thing. Mm. You will just sort of enjoy it, probably, and improve so much faster. But my whole way of doing everything is just agonizingly slow, so that was the only way I could do it. But I also realized, because I, I thought, like, I know Raven, I know that name. And yeah. sure enough, I found an email from you from way back in 2014 or something. And I think you yeah. were, where were you? You were at Nowness or somewhere. I was at Nowness. What were you doing at Nowness? <laughs> well, I'm really scared. What does the email say? Um, I was commissioning director. So I was deciding good stories to tell and then trying to make them happen, basically. Right. It's a video content site. So like short film. Okay. What does my email say? What does it say? It was, I mean, it was totally innocuous. I think it was a thing that you were kindly trying to get me involved with a little bit. And I just think that I wasn't around or something. But I came to your South by... I did come to your South by Southwest talk. Yeah. So I was in South by Southwest. Was it that year, 2014? Yeah. I think it was. And I went out there. I got an invite and I thought, oh, yeah, I've got an invite to South by Southwest. I've cracked America. (laughs) (laughs) So I went out there and then ended up in this weird conference room. I wasn't in one of those groovy bars down the main drag, you know, with people kind of beatboxing outside and everybody intermingling and (laughs) reading poetry and stuff like that. I thought that's what it was going to be like. But instead, I had to go and check in and register in this giant soulless conference building. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? Yeah. And there's floor after floor after floor of all these things, all these people doing their talks. And, you know, you're aware that going on at the same time as your thing is Lena Dunham giving her keynote speech or whatever, whoever it happened to be that year. But you came along to my show. So thanks, man. I was there. You're welcome. What were you doing there? Were you just watching stuff? Yeah, so it's quite... Because it's the film festival. They do a series of shorts that are really good. So I was there basically finding young, new, interesting voices who were making videos, young directors. Did we meet after the show? No, I think I went to see Lena Dunham straight away. (laughs) Right. Fair enough. That was when she was unproblematic, wasn't it? Um... That was before people started calling her problematic, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know... I just lobbed that out know. there. I don't know. Is she problematic? Yeah, she's divisive, but I, I think that's part of... I've lost track. It's the backlash effect, you know? No one likes hearsay anymore. It's just, you know, <laughs> things eventually turn. Hearsay are very problematic. <laughs> yeah, they always were. But, I mean, who isn't problematic? This is the thing. Like, surely everybody is problematic, You know, from the absolute most woke person you can think of. I mean, my most woke person is always um, AOC, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've yet to see any problems occurring with her. I think for me, everything and everyone is problematic. It's virtually impossible to live a life that isn't somehow shitting on someone else somewhere. And I think there's a level at which we are all trying to figure out how to be good you're on social media right yeah where are you most active twitter instagram instagram mainly so yeah is instagram still everyone being nice to each other or is it now become a little bit more barbed 
It's a bit more barbed, for sure. But, I mean, we've lived through a few weeks of, like, aggressive call-outs in terms of whatever you have done in the past is coming back to haunt you, whoever you are. Right. And I think people are just wise to the insincerity that can be at play. It's really obvious when you're looking at, like, an influencer in a bikini, what the mechanic is of that. You, we're all kind of complicit in understanding that they're trying to sell you something. Yeah. But I think there's a level at which now the black squares for Black Lives Matter, just, I, I, I've said before, that it was almost a Pandora's box. It was a powerful thing that happened, like going on my Instagram and it, the whole stream being black squares. I felt it was very powerful, and I, but I think we've all realised the kind of projection of goodness isn't going to move us out of some of these systems that are more tricky. Yeah, that's right. And also just I get the sense that like, I think I said to you in my message, I'd been going through some of my old stuff and it's been a similar experience now post the killing of George Floyd and all the subsequent protests and the Black Lives Matter movement becoming much more prominent, etc., which as we speak has been happening in the last few weeks. And it's always very chastening. You look back at stuff that you've done and said and you think, well, I I definitely wouldn't say those things now or I would think mm. harder before I did. Or you realize like, shit, that could easily be misunderstood. But it's confusing to think about to what extent you have to kind of redact all that stuff you know do you leave that kind of thing on your youtube channel for example if you've got a video that is not like horribly offensive i hope but there's bits in it maybe a little bit of language or terminology that you wouldn't use now you know what i mean i think you're fine i just have to you know john cleese and this whole don't mention the war episode of faulty towers which obviously used the most a hideous racist language within that episode. What I don't want to see the world do is try and erase the history of where we've come from. I, you know, all of this talk about pulling down the statues. I agree that we might not want all of these particular behaviours and ways of being put on a pedestal, but I do think that they are part of our history. And what we can't do is erase the past. Mm-hmm. I think everyone recognises that, you know, Britain was built on colonialism. We can't undo that. But as long as everyone is understands that, then we can move forward in a way that is more progressive. But right now, there's this massive focus on people not really realising the systems that are at play and yeah. thinking of racism specifically as active hate. And I think that's quite easy to manage. The active hate thing and challenging that and changing that is quite straightforward. But more systematic issues of diversity and people being given the chances to be the best that they can be that's the much longer more difficult it's much harder to understand the quickest way to fix that yes it's not a clear fix for that i mean to what extent does it in what ways does it impact your life for example i I noticed there was a reference in the beginning of your book you're talking about all the things that you're self-conscious about when you're starting to write a book. And I had exactly the same experience when I started mine. You start imagining all the reviews you're going to get. You start imagining (laughs) all the criticism you're going to get. And basically it's your own insecurities kind of being reflected back at you via these imagined reviews and all these things. And you, and you dig down into them very entertainingly. But one of the things I noticed that you said as well was like, Oh, am I just uh, taking a diversity quotient here? Oh Yeah. So is that how it sort of manifests for you, anxiety about racial issues? It will all, uh, my racial identity is always uh, dual. So there's my white mum who brought me up and I've lived a very kind of a life that she has as her kid. And it's again with this relationship with my dad that's really tied up with my blackness and who, what that means for me. And I think I would say that I've privileged, like... My worry was always going to be that I've been given chances as part of something that isn't just my own merit, for sure. But I, 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 I don't know. I don't think that's exclusive to me being mixed race. I do think there's a level at which we all we all feel impostery to a certain degree, even if we're very capable. Yes, mate. I mean, it's so hard for me to kind of imagine what it's like as a white person because I kind of dismiss 
people behaving badly towards me or bits of bad luck as just like, okay, whatever. Mm. But when you know that you live in a world where people definitely are prejudiced and are racist, then it must be so difficult to process those things without having some kind of racial filter, you know, or racial perspective on them and just think, wait, is that, did that person say that because I'm black or what's going on here? Absolutely. Like, it's the same as me. It's not the same as me being gay, but I can never channel. I can't separate the strands of who I am. I can't separate them. It's always just Raven Smith in this situation. So, of course, there'll be racial stuff that's coming at me, but there'll also be home, not homophobia, but like an awareness of my, me being gay coming at me as well. And, and the privileges that I have growing up in a, essentially a white family with my mum. Mm-hmm. That like I have to really take on board my own privileges within that too. Yeah. And that this like constant fear of being a difficult black person and not wanting to be that mm-hmm. makes you sometimes less likely to call out difficult stuff. Because everyone wants an easy life, really. It's much easier for all of us to pretend that if it's not an issue for me, it's not an issue for anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think from what I have to take responsibility for is my privileges within this system that's fucked. Basically, a really skewed bias system that doesn't give equal space for people of colour. And how do I make sure that, you know, I talk about myself as being like part way up a ladder of successful capitalism how do i you know is the capitalist system is me scaling that a success as a black person or is it negating the other people that aren't able to scale that ladder so easily so i think for me in terms of what i want to do next it's it's essentially about getting other people up at this level too I think there's a lot of talk about what black people will talk about if they don't have to talk about race. And I'm a prime example of that. You know, the one I talk about so many different things in my book. And I think you can't be what you can't see. And as a visible gay black man living a predominantly happy life, I think that's important for people to see. I get worried that I reverse engineer being a show off, which I think is quite a common thing. If you've ever seen two actors talking, it's like you start to reverse engineer. Well, it's very important for me to be having a good time on Instagram. But there is a level at which that's true as well. Yeah, right. But I do worry all the time about my legacy in this kind of constant chatter and din. Like, what are you building that lasts a long time? The book really helped that fear. Yeah. But I worry about it all the time. Do you? I feel as if, I hope as if I might be getting to the point where I'm cutting myself loose from those kinds of worries. Especially nowadays when society is re-evaluating their, you know, opinions of so many things so quickly. You sort of think, mm. God, it's, you're on to a losing wicket. I don't play cricket, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're bowling a bad googly if you think that <laughs> you're, you can construct a watertight legacy you know that's going to last any length of time at some point it'll crumble it'll be forgotten about it'll be reassessed it'll be cancelled i don't know what you know yeah it's so important you you can't really start considering what people are going to do with it after you're gone and do you plan for the future are you thinking about like where am i going to be in 10 years no To be very honest, nearly all of my aspirations are about having a family. And that is the one thing that just for two men takes so long and so much money that it's just forever or for the last four years has been on the back burner because I I would say most parents will say they you never have enough time or enough money or enough space to have a kid. But we actually have to put money in straight away when we decide to do it. So it's a bit of a, that is my like core aspiration. It's never going to be about new stuff and, and better clothes and better shoes, even though I love those things. So when I think about 10 years from now, it's always about children. But in terms of career, I've been very good at assessing what's in front of me and making smart decisions. And that sounds kind of, you know, oblique, but an editor came to me and said, I love your columns. Have you thought about writing a book? And I was like, no, there's no way I can write a book. And she explained to me that it's just like a long essay. And I was like, okay, I could do that. I can write a longer essay. I can write a few hundred essays. That's fine. So I think there's a level at which I am thinking about book two, and that's exciting. 
but I'm not that far forward in my thinking in terms of my career and where I can be and what I can be. I'm more interested in like, when we have a kid, you know, I can't go to Berlin for two months of the year to write books. Unless you take the kid. Yeah. I don't know. You know, obviously my life will change massively. How does it work then? Have you begun the process of applying or I don't know I've got no conception so of how surrogacy in the UK is about four years on a waiting list and we've been there like three and it just takes I mean it's just a huge undertaking for the woman it's massive and there's no kind of sidestepping that it's huge I, I don't know if I would be able to do it as a benevolent act so there's a level at which we're sort of at the mercy of the systems that are already in place. I mean, there's loads of legal stuff that is just frustrating and stupid and, you know, red tape that seems unnecessary. Yeah. Like there's a whole birth certificate thing that if your surrogate mother is married, the husband and her are the parents on the birth certificate. Oh, really? Regardless of whether or not it's someone else's, it's my sister-in-law's egg and my sperm. Like it's just... So, and if you go to America, there's a lot more protection, but it costs, you know... £150,000. So, <laughs> so it, it, there's loads of stuff going on all the time with that. Um, wow. I mean, it, you're just yeah. launching yourself into a moral minefield. <laughs> yeah, but I was assuming parenthood is like that anyway. Yeah, of like course all of these is, yeah. aspirations you have for it, and then just you're just tired. Yeah. That's how I felt about when we buy my first flat. And thinking, when I get there, I'm going to have sex on the floor with some pizza boxes. Sure. And I just was, like, exhausted for about two months. Just slept. But, like, <laughs> you know, most things, when you get there, you just feel very tired. But you did have sex on the floor with some pizza boxes, though, right? Oh, when we moved into the house, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ah! The second time. Of course. Yeah, yeah. All we do is have sex. That's it. And then, do you know who your surrogate mother will be? No. So they, th- there's an agency who's going to find this lady but it's such you have to you know even a, just on your like tinder application form for surrogacy you have to say a lot of stuff about like embryos and you know down syndrome and all of these things that seem very far away from where i am now i mean it's totally abstract and also i think of parenthood as the most profound and mundane thing that you can do it's like I worry about what kind of dad I'll be, but I keep thinking, oh, my mum did all right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, just, I like the theory of it. I think the practice will just be tough. Yeah, yeah. And but will there be a point, though, with the mum, sorry if I'm fixating on this one aspect of it, will there be a point at which it's like Britain's Got Talent and you've got a selection of surrogate mums and you go, oh, yeah, she's very good. No. <laughs> No, <laughs> there aren't that many surrogate mums. I mean, that there's a not. What's the opposite of a surplus? A drought so, of uh, surrogate mums. A um, a dearth. Surf it. A dearth. A dearth. Because it's such a huge, huge thing. It's a huge, huge ask. You know. So I know it really is. I mean, it's hard to yeah. get your head round. And is it? It must be something that happens fairly regularly. That the mums just change their mind, or are presumably it's all. A contract thing? Do you sign a waiver saying, I'm not going to change my mind, and even if I do, tough luck? But if someone did change their mind, how could you... It would be so hard to say, sorry, you signed the form, we're going to take the kid. Protection in the UK for both parties is quite weak, right? Um, legally speaking. It's a benevolent system, so you are reliant on the kindness. Yes. Bizarrely, up to six months after the baby's born, the birth mother can ch- just change her mind. Okay. She can change her mind. And that just seems completely wild. And in the States, you know, I can be like, you can only eat kale for nine months. Like, there's a lot more... It's a business transaction, so you just have the same contracts that you would in any other business. It's much more right, you, rigid. Right, you can make stipulations about how the mother behaves while she's pregnant. You basically... That that first initial contract before you do any kind of IVF process or uh, insemination, you stipulate your desires. And they, I, I heard about this. I mean, there's horror stories everywhere. But I heard about this couple and the woman tested positive for marijuana just before she was about to have their baby. And the couple were like, we don't care. It's California. And the surrogacy agency were like, she's terminated the contract. It's null and void. We're not working with her. So there's a level at which it's very much like... 
business. It's a real business. Yeah. People pay a lot of money for the security of that system. Right. And I don't know if that's better or worse in here, you know? Can you say, I want you to get really into drum and bass and only listen yes. to that for nine months? You can say, I want you to play Ronnie Size into the womb with headphones yeah. every night. <laughs> and then that's it. Wow. Well, listen, man, I hope that goes well. That's exciting. We'll get there. You know, families just come in all come to you in different ways. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder what kind of father you will be. Because I always thought I didn't think hard enough about the whole fatherhood thing at all. I just thought, well, my wife seems really keen. I'll just go along with what she wants and she can yeah. do all the hard work and I'll just be I'll be like the guy's friend uh, and I'll just watch movies with them and get them into music and be fun. Yeah. <laughs> and you can do that for a while, but then it becomes really difficult. And then once they're teenagers, it's quite a, a, a shocking wake-up call. Because I think however you've been with them as a parent... By the time they become teenage, their whole raison d'etre is just to do the opposite of what you want mm. and to define themselves in opposition to you. I think it's, you know, it's they've kind of got to do it, really. Mm. But it's so shocking as a parent to just think, but look, I'm nice. I'm fun. And I was fun. And, I've, you know, I didn't beat you up once. And uh, I, I told you all your Minecraft stuff was brilliant when it was really pretty shit and impractical. And, um, you know, what more am I supposed to do? But they're acting like they totally hate you. It's really weird. Yeah, I was like that with my mum. And she's bro. Yeah, I was like, enough. This is not cool. You're not cool. How long did that go on for? Oh, I don't know. A good few years. And we were really close because it was just the two of us. So I think she took it. I always think it was hard at the time. But I remember telling her she wasn't cool and she was like, you're not meant to think I'm cool. That's not really how this works. And I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, she's right. <laughs> how annoying. <laughs> yeah. But we never, I did, we never fully fell out. Not really. I remember having a party and get, when she went away one weekend and getting in a lot of trouble. She cut the plug off the TV, which was like... My whole life at that point. I didn't do anything but from watch TV. She cut the plug off the TV. <laughs> yes. She was like, goodbye, your entire life. And I was like, oh, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Extreme. She knew what she was doing. That's good. You know, you could have learned how to rewire the plug, but then that would have been kind of an achievement. Yeah, but it wasn't, I wasn't allowed to rewire the plug. Okay. I would have been in a lot of trouble if the, the plug had gone back on. That wouldn't, have, that wouldn't have been a punishment. She knew what she was doing. It wasn't like you're grounded. She was like, the, the actual plug's coming off the telly. <laughs> like, pretty hardcore. Good for her. I mean, you know, I think discipline is like, obviously, when you've got like a, a son who just wants to drink vodka in the park. I mean, she must have just been like one idiot. Oh, man. The other night, my eldest son is 17 going to be 18 quite soon actually holy goodness i didn't even think about that <laughs> oh man and the, like i think we're we're not too strict i don't think as a family me and his mum but um it's certainly never been okay to sort of swear i don't think we'd never get really upset about swearing i don't think yeah but we've never sworn in front of them and used bad language even though they know you know they've seen me do stuff on TV or they've seen my videos where I'm using a lot of bad language. So they, they know that I say those things. But the other night, we've got a fly problem at the moment. Every, you know, as soon as the weather gets warm and if there's a bit of rain and just this time of year, it's a disaster area. And we, you know, we're surrounded by fields and there's cows in the fields and lots of shit everywhere and in the house. And anyway, so there's, <laughs> so there's flies everywhere. And my son just is obsessive about the flies he's got one of those yeah. um bug whacker things that looks like a tennis racket yeah and so he goes around with the zapper just obsessively trying to get these guys and and zap them on the wing especially like if you get them while they're flying it feels particularly spectacular but uh, we were just about to sit down and eat and he was over at the sink like swiping at flies and suddenly he goes these cunting flies! Oh my god! 
having that, you know, I'd never heard him say shit before. Yeah. <laughs> and Ooh. suddenly it's like, whoa. He went to a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and my wife said, Frank, what are you? And I said, did he just say what I thought he said? <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't really that worried about it. But I said, oh, no, you've got to. You've got to keep that one for special occasions. That's not for swatting yeah. flies. And he's like, okay, right, yeah, sorry, I went too far, didn't I? <laughs> oh. Oh. I thought I turned, like, I turned it to flight mode. Sorry Is it about this. an alert? No. No, it's not. It's a wife. Hello? Okay. Sorry, I'm still recording. Thank you. Okay, bye. Boy, I really screwed this up. I just totally you didn't get in trouble. I should have cleared all this and put it down in the diary, and I just yeah. didn't. And now I'm going to pay. It'll be it'll be really subtle the way you have to pay. Yep. It won't be a row. No, no, it won't. It'll just be low level. It'll be a hum. It'll be humming. Yeah. Oh dear. I think she might still be annoyed about. The other night we were watching um, Newsnight and Kirsty Walk was talking to a woman who ran a restaurant and she kept on referring to her as a restaurateur. After a while I said, oh, I think Kirsty means to say restaurateur. And my wife said, restaurateur. I was like, yeah, I think that's the word for a person who runs a restaurant. She's like, no, it's a restaurateur. It's like you run a restaurant, you've got a restaurant, then you're a restaurateur. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure it's restaurateur. It doesn't sound right, but that's the word. She's like, no, it isn't. I mean, she basically poured a pint of scorn over my assertion (laughs) that it was restaurateur. And she was rolling her eyes and shaking her head. And it it was so glorious because I knew I was right. And I just was letting her carry on as long as she possibly could like shaking her head and acting like i'm the stupidest guy in the whole world which usually i would be like normally i would get things like that totally wrong but uh, this was the one occasion when i knew i was right because i have a friend who is a restaurateur he corrected me a while back and said actually it's not restaurateur and we looked it up and i i mean it it took every ounce of self-control for me not to get up and start dancing yeah, like Tom Cruise on the couch. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like straight up there. I would have been up there. <laughs> Tom Cruise, exactly. Tom Cruise on the couch on Oprah. Or even just yeah. Tom Cruise on the couch on Oprah and then segue into Tom Cruise in Risky Business. Take my trousers off, sliding yeah. around the room <laughs> in my underpants, singing into an imaginary mic, jumping in the air and clapping my hands. Anyway, Yeah, you're going to be paying for that. Mm, biscuits mm-hmm. I am in love with you I'll dip you in my tea But pull you out before you fall apart I won't abandon you Biscuits, biscuits, mm-hmm. nice Say you love biscuits too Share a bucket with me Won't feel piggy all alone Inside the chocolate zone Biscuits, biscuits <laughs> Yes Have you ever heard of the Biscoff ice cream bar? No, but we, you were talking about the, the spread Yes So when I worked in an office Yeah this Italian guy kept buying the spread and putting it in the communal cupboard and then everyone got addicted to the spread. The Biscoff spread? Yeah. Did you have any? Yeah, it's it's crack. It's the <laughs> best thing I've ever tasted. I couldn't get enough of it. Like, I can't have it in the house. It's one of those crack snacks that I'm like, I can't have this in the house. Right. Because it will just disappear. Um, it's the biscotti... You were saying it's like it's been chewed already. Yeah, so I should explain for people who've never encountered the world of Biscoff. Originally, they were little biscuits that I think are sort of designed for having with coffee. They're quite small. They're unusually crunchy. They have a sort of smoky caramel flavor. They're dark brown. They're very tasty. And it it feels as if there's little crystals of joy inside there. Mm. 
and then you can get as in addition to the little biscuits you can get this cookie butter spread which is what you're talking about and then you can also get an ice cream bar and i was introduced to the whole biscoff universe via the ice cream bar that my wife bought one day and brought home and i found it in the in the freezer one evening and i thought oh, i'll give it a go and it's only small as well it's not like a unwieldy magnum or something is it on a stick yeah it's on a stick and it is the greatest but i was looking at the cookie butter spread and i mm. was saying that it reminds me of like eating a biscuit when you're a child and you just masticate it until it's a paste in your mouth could you relate to that yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> what's that about yeah because it's like a transformation. I don't know what that's about. It's such a vivid, spot-on, universal thing that I was like, I thought I did that privately as a child. I think it's an urge that children have. Did you used to like to mash up your food as well? Like whatever it was, you just mash it, mix it all up. I used to do that. Do you know what? I really vividly remember getting the hot chocolate tin and shaking it to make a powder and then inhaling the powder whoa (laughs) so disgusting and you'd be sneezing and stuff though right yeah well it's really like i don't know no it's like vix but it's like chocolatey vix i don't remember mixing stuff together i was really allowed to like cook quite a lot of stuff when i was younger i remembered making mushrooms with lilt that was a big staple for quite a while just a bit of lilt in with the mushrooms. So like totally tropical. What you, so you're frying up mushrooms in a frying pan? And then just add a bit of lilt. What made you think of that? I don't know where it came from. Just the, my internal Jamie Oliver just switched on while I was drinking the lilt, I assume. Yeah. And sautéing the mushrooms. And I thought these things could be joined. I ate that wow, a lot. Wow, that is impressive creativity. That's genius. Presumably you could do that with a bag of cocaine as well. <laughs> well, put it in with the mushrooms. Yeah, of Put it in with the mushrooms or just put it in a pot <laughs> and shake it around and then inhale the cloud. Is that what, like, guys who run drug cartels do? Yeah. They put all the aircon on, a load of Dyson fans, and just throw the bag into the room. <laughs> I remember going to, a, like, a, an event in London and it had, you went into a room and you inhaled gin and tonic whoa yeah how what they had um vaporized it yeah and it was pumped into the room and you couldn't go in you it was like a timing thing and that you had to leave because you just basically get alcohol poisoning if you stayed in there for an hour but you basically just inhaled gin and tonic for like five minutes what party is this it was cool i don't know it was by bombas and par so they were doing loads of events they once did one that was like a lily pond and you got on a lily leaf and like punted across it, mm. but you could dip your cup into the whatever you put the, the lake and drink the punch. It's like a kind of decadent Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, that was already decadent, I guess, wasn't it? <laughs> chocolate Pretty decadent. Lake. I just, I'm obsessed with Grandpa Joe. I don't know why. I just keep thinking he kept saying he was ill and they were all ill, but the second he got a ticket to the Chocolate Factory, he was out of bed. Straight up. Jumping out of bed. Can you imagine the state of that bed? (laughs) Oh, Oh. I can now. Also, they just must have been in terrible shape. Imagine the sores and everything. I don't know. Maybe they were looking after each other properly. Part of me thinks the bottom of the bed is like when you walk into a river, like city, (laughs) near the bottom. Yeah. And mysterious. You just don't think about it too much. You just try and get to breaststroke as quick as you can. You know, they didn't write about it in the book, but maybe that was part of Charlie's job was to tend to them and care for them and ensure that everything was shipshape in the bed. And But I would have liked it spelt out for me because it did worry me. But I also feel like they were in the bed, but the second he got a ticket to the chocolate yeah, you're factory, right. he was like, I don't need this bed. Yeah. And his muscles would have been all wasted if he'd been in bed for that amount of time. Yeah. I mean, it's flaw- a deeply flawed book. Let alone, and I haven't got me started on the chocolate factory <laughs> and the Oompa Loompas. The Oompa Loompas. Did you love the Oompa Loompas? Uh, in the book, yes. Not in the film. In the first film, yes. In the original film. The orange. Gene Hackman, yeah. 
Gene Hackman, yeah. Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder. Which, which one's Gene Hackman? Raw Tenenbaums. Yeah. yeah. Gene Wilder. <laughs> Gene Hackman would have been a more stern one of presence, the genes. I think. One of the Hollywood genes. Yeah. He's fantastic in it. Yeah, very What good. happens at the end? Does he just go off and... Do they go off in the elevator? Yes, they do. They bust through the ceiling of the factory and they blast off into space. Yeah. And um, that's where they meet the vermicious canids. But that's the sequel. <laughs> Thinking of that, though, reminds me of an incident that you mentioned in your book, actually, in Trivial Pursuits from 2018, not that long ago, when there was a false alarm in Hawaii and they thought that they were going to get obliterated by nuclear weapons. I mean, it just seems yeah. it's still unbelievable. I'd forgotten about that story, but it's so weird, isn't it? Like it actually happened January 13th, 2018. A ballistic missile alert was issued via the emergency alert system and commercial mobile alert system over television, radio and cell phones in the state of Hawaii. And basically the residents of Hawaii were told you've got six minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, to live. To live. Before the missile hits. And what was your statistic? Oh, I don't know what the percentage is, but everyone went on Pornhub. Pornhub, like, spiked in those six minutes. Everyone started touching themselves. <laughs> the knuckle... What did I say? Knuckles flashing before your eyes before you die. I just don't think that I would be doing that. Do you? I have no idea. I just... Imagine being, like, this silly alert. I've been pranked, and then everyone on Twitter is like, we're dying. Like, everyone you know is like, this is it. I don't know. So you're sort of thinking... Well, look, I want to have one more wank, but I don't have much time, so I'm going to have to use porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems like not the way you want to go out. No. Looking at someone else having sex. It really doesn't. doesn't. seem like quite the cherry on a lifetime of cake. I just think if you're thinking about what you want to do before you die, you never think in six minutes. Like, I, I, like, I can't believe Pornhub spiked and went through the roof. It makes me feel like, thank God humans are still just being shit at being human. It makes me feel better. I'm, I, I would have hated it if, I don't know what else they could have Googled apart from porn. Uh, they could have Googled, I don't know, like a philosopher. They could have started thinking about how they'd lived their life and whether they'd made peace. I mean, because presumably you're not talking about religious people, or maybe you are, maybe you're talking about people whether they're religious or not who are just thinking actually six minutes what it comes down to is i've got to have a wank i want to come one last time before i yeah, go sure i mean do you know what maybe it's more relatable than i thought it's the circle of life <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking about what you were saying about biscotti and the the chewed up stuff and i was thinking all of the best snacks are pre-chewed yes like those nut bars like the naked bars is like someone has just chewed it for you. This is the convenience that I strive for. I'm not going to chew this. Why do I chew this? I'm a man on the go. I'm on the run. Exactly. I'm dashing from A to B. I haven't got time to chew a date. Mash it with some nuts for me. Yeah. We're all wandering around this planet thinking that we're so superior. We've learned all these lessons. We're so technologically advanced. We can fly to the moon. We've got Wi-Fi. And basically when it comes down to it, you want your mummy bird to chew up a snack and spit it into your mouth. <laughs> and then you want to have a wank. <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace.
continue. Rosie, come on. Let's head back. Hello, yeah, how are you doing? Not too bad, thanks, yeah. Wish the weather was better. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, I'm watching that as well. It's quite good. I know, Brendan Gleeson's amazing as Donald Trump. Ah, uh, yeah. It'll all be over in three weeks. Yeah. Okay, see ya. Very chatty bird. Welcome back, podcats. That was Raven Smith. Is a li- oh, squawky. You'll find a link to his book, Raven Smith's Trivial Pursuits, in the description of this podcast. It is windy. A couple of things to tell you before I say goodbye. Thing one, on the 21st of October, 2020, at 9pm, I will be having a live-streamed podcast conversation for one hour with comedian Susie Ruffle, herself, host of the Out podcast, which she describes as being about the inspiring lives of LGBTQ plus people, And I'll be chatting to Susie as part of the Unmute podcast festival. Other shows live streaming as part of Unmute include the Blind Boy podcast, Black Gals Living, Brett Goldstein's Films to be Buried With, the Off Menu podcast, The Bugle with Andy Zaltzman, Cuddle Club with Lou Sanders, and more. Sign up for tickets for any of those shows or for my conversation with Susie Ruffle right now via the link in the description of this podcast. Hope you can make it. Podcast recommendation. Listen to a few episodes of this. And I've really been enjoying it. That was recommended to me by either Kiri Pritchard-McLean or Matthew Crosby. Or maybe both. I saw them last week. I was doing a thing in London. And we were chatting about podcasts. And one of them, I can't remember who mentioned the Hollywood Crime Scene podcast with Desi Jedikin and Rachel Fisher. They're Americans from America. And they have a loose, informal way of conversing. It's irreverent, enjoyable, refreshing. Um, I don't know much about Desi and Rachel, but they're very good on this podcast. They discuss true tales of crime and scandal involving celebrities. Now, it's a crowded market, the whole true crime and scandal podcast world, which I would normally not be that interested in. I've never been a big true crime person, but the main thing about this podcast, or at least the ones I've listened to so far, is that... uh, Desi and Rachel are very funny with each other and talk about whatever they're talking about in a very entertaining and diverting way. I listened to a recent one all about the Brady Bunch and some of the -the behind-the-scenes stories of that show. Here's a couple of reviews from Stitcher for the Hollywood Crime Scene podcast. This is a five-star review from Frank Chicago. Hey, Frankie Chicago! Is that what people from Chicago sound like? No, I don't think so. Two great hosts with incredible chemistry, says Frank. I don't listen or read much true crime material. Same here, Frank. But Desi Jedikin and Rachel Fisher do a terrific job with this show. Each episode focuses on a single crime or scandal related, at least tangentially, to Hollywood slash entertainment. Jedikin and Fisher alternate in hosting duties, which means one of them does a deep dive on the subject and presents most of the material, to which the other reacts. Both women are smart and funny on their own, but their warm camaraderie elevates the format to something special. I agree with you, Frank Chicago. Five stars. Now, for the sake of balance, here's a less positive review. Three out of five stars. This one is from someone calling themselves M with loads of M's. And it was written about four months ago. Can't listen at work. Enjoy the topics and would love to listen at work. 
but the ladies use such bad language so often that I can't listen while I'm at work. Wow, M really wants to listen at work. The episode today had an F-bomb every other sentence. Disappointing that they can't tell a story without the language. Fair enough, M doesn't like the language. It didn't bother me personally. But then, as you regular podcasts will know, I don't mind swearing. I always feel with podcasts that people have definitely chosen to listen to those and they generally do so on a one-to-one basis often with headphones so really I feel it's like talking to a friend and if you understand that sometimes your friend will swear then that's okay isn't it but I do understand that some people occasionally find um, bad language jarring and would prefer not to hear it at all M is one of those people But the thing I don't understand is, why is it so important for Em to listen at work? First of all, she's still going to work during the pandemic. I don't know, maybe she was in some part of the world where there wasn't a full lockdown. But once she's at work, why is it so important for her to listen loudly to a podcast while everyone else is trying to work? Guys, I'm just going to listen to my crime podcast. I hope everyone's cool with that. Okay. I I don't think it's got swearing. Oh, no, it's got swearing. Guys, I'm... Oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, no, grandma swearing. Oh, no, guys. You you carry on working. I'm sorry. I'm going to... Just listening to my podcast. That's a childish characterization of what I imagine the situation was with M. I apologize, M. Anyway, bad language or not, I very much enjoyed the Hollywood Crime Scene podcast. I'm grateful to either Kiri or Matthew for the recommendation. And uh, I hope some of you enjoy it too. That's it for this week. Thanks very much indeed. Once again to Raven Smith for making the time to talk to me. Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for always invaluable production support. And to Matt Lamont for additional editing. The artwork for this podcast is by Helen Green. There's a link to her site in the description. Back soon for more ridiculous waffling. But right now, from myself and Rosie, wherever you are, I hope you're doing well or reasonably well or not too bad, one of those. Until next we meet, please take extremely good care. And uh, for what it's worth, I... uh, I love you. Bye!